name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to the Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. We've reached episode 10. Over the past nine episodes, we've tackled several big topics important to derivatives markets, LIBOR transition, liquidity and alternative reference rates, Brexit, ESG, and innovation in technology. We're going to explore several of these topics again in this episode, but from a slightly different perspective. Specifically, we'll be looking at how these issues are influencing trading patterns and client behaviour. To cover this, our guest today is, is the board member, Sean Harrell. Sean was recently appointed Head of Global Sales and Relationship Management in addition to her existing Head of Fixed Income, Currencies and Commodities for Europe role at RBC Capital Markets, following a reorganisation of the bank's global markets business. Before that, she was Head of FIC for Europe, as well as Global Head of FX, also at RBC Capital Markets. Talking to Sean is, is the CEO, Scott O'Malia. So Scott, we've made it to episode 10, and this should be a pretty interesting one. Absolutely. I like the idea that we're going to look at it from the client's perspective. Really big issues on the horizon, as you mentioned. Death of LIBOR announced on March 5th. We've covered some of these issues already, but that announcement should be triggering client behavior in a a new and different way. So it'd be interesting to see her perspective. It'll also be interesting to hear whether this has altered behaviors in terms of supporting the transition and quickening the pace. I like working with Sean on the board and uh, get her perspective on some of these other issues, including Brexit. Yeah, it will be interesting to hear how firms have adapted to some of the big issues that have occurred. And like you say, Brexit, we're nearly five months on from the end of the Brexit transition period, and it remains challenging for EU and UK entities to trade certain liquid derivatives with each other because of a lack of trading venue equivalents. We've done analysis, and others have as well, that suggests much of this business has shifted onto USFs. But the question is whether this is going to be a permanent shift. Well, let's ask Sean her views. Let's proceed with the podcast. Sean, thanks so much for joining us on The Swap. As a global head of sales, I'm really interested to gain your insight as to what the customer is thinking. I want to make sure that the show is entirely about the customer, in fact. So let's get started with a general overview question. What are the current and main priorities that your customers are looking at and RBC you're looking at? And what can you tell us about that? Hi, Scott. Thanks very much for um, inviting me to join you here today. So aside, uh, I mean, in terms of the main priorities, I think our main priorities are making markets and providing advice and liquidity to clients. But from a business development perspective, there are a few key themes that I think will probably be consistent with most of the listeners. I think from one perspective within RBC, it's focused on our staff's well-being. And obviously, the the last 12 months have really given all employers cause to really focus in on staff well-being and how they've been impacted by, by the pandemic. The second key area is on eyeball transition and how we're working with our customers and internally to ensure that we can affect a smooth eyeball transition. I think the third, both internally and externally, is looking at how can we improve diversity in markets businesses, both from a gender, race, and background perspective. And and I think some, you know, we feel we've made progress. I think the industry's made progress, but there's still a huge amount more to do. So a big focus on what can we do to um, to help drive diversity. And I think the other two key areas are the evolution of ESG and what does ESG mean 
from a client's perspective, whether or not you're an issuer or an investor or a corporate client, both in terms of, of debt investments, but also the evolving world of ESG in derivatives. And finally, I'd say it's looking at what does the future world of work look like as we come out of the pandemic and we start thinking about going back to a world where people may be back in premises full-time or part-time, but what does that future world of work actually look like? Let's pick up with that future world of work. You managed the team through the pandemic. That obviously had impacts on your team. It also changes the way you deal with customers. Probably not a lot of flying uh, at all, possibly. So how did you manage the change? How did your teams continue to support customers, reach out to customers, and what challenges has that created? Yeah, look, I, I think similar to most businesses globally, the vast majority of our staff moved really quickly to working from home in the spring of 2020. We did keep a small number of staff in our offices to ensure that we had traders who were very heavily reliant on speed of connection and having low latency and ensuring that we always had a backup in the event that there may may have been a a Wi-Fi issue in someone's home. So we always always made sure that we we could continue to provide that provision of liquidity to to our clients. And I think there are obviously a number of challenges and benefits that have come out through working from home across the pandemic. And I, I think the challenges have actually evolved over time. I think initially it was very much around technology and home setup and, you know, have people got the right headsets and screens? Have they got a desk to work on? You know, can we ship them out Wi-Fi boosters if their kids are using all the Wi-Fi for schoolwork and Netflix and so on? But there was a huge amount of momentum in those early stages, I think, from busy markets and the teams knew each other. They knew their clients. There was a lot going on. So actually, I think the connectivity in those early days was really strong. The engagement with clients was was really good. I think there was a lot to talk about. And I think that everybody really went that extra mile to make sure that they were, were reaching out and connecting. And it was all a bit new and exciting and I think gave everybody a little bit of a buzz, albeit that the environment itself was was obviously very disconcerting. We had to put in place a number of things like remote supervisory practices and, and evolve our surveillance and think about how maybe we, we would manage conflicts that don't exist when you're working in an office. And so a lot of those from a client perspective is thinking about what those conflicts might be and how do we manage them. And then the process evolved on how do we make sure that we're supporting staff and at the same time being there for our clients. And and that was making, you know, what, what could we do as an employer to give people time off for homeschooling or caring, um, enhanced benefits and things like you know, g- online GP services and things that might make people's lives easier so that they in turn could, when they were able, focus on having time to, um, to do their job effectively and try and take away as much of those challenges that they were facing on, from, a, from a personal perspective. And then you, you spoke about, you know, how do we interact with clients? You know, there was this huge change of you know, most of us were used to being in meetings, being in, in person and spending a lot of our time in on airplanes flying across the globe and everything from conferences to roundtables to meetings being very much physical. And there was that huge scramble of how do you replace that with virtual. And so, you know, again, like like everybody moved to using 
video conferencing, um, virtual events, and, and figuring out a way of how could we how could we get information and content to our clients in a in a virtual world. I think yeah, there's been a real boost to working from home. I, I think you know in terms of flexibility, in terms of of getting rid of the commute, and and I think you know for many people it's also had a financial benefit. But I think that it's come also with you know with a with a with a big weight on staff in terms of the things that they had to deal with on on homeschooling, caring, supporting family members, and and obviously not everybody has a home environment that's really conducive to work. So I think I think that's the what happened in in the early stages and, and perhaps throughout the, the summer. I think I think the challenges now are probably a little bit different, and there's still technology challenges. There's still you know, issues around, you know, people's Wi-Fi failing and WebEx glitches. But now I think we're dealing with fatigue and both both within within our staff, but I think, you know, but some of the people that we're interact interacting with. And I think, you know, it, it can be really exacerbated working from home, people having long hours, no boundaries and so on. And and I think that, that can be that can be really tiring for people. And I think that you know a lot of the feedback from clients and from our own staff is that they're they're, they're fed up of virtual. And you know the the uh, you know what was really new and innovative a year ago is quite hard to keep people's engagement and focus. And and I think people can lose focus during you know even an hours hour long conference. So I think they're the things that are that are difficult. And and you know, we're we're working and looking at how do we how do we evolve in this. As we start to welcome people back into the office, how do you deal with teams that are in split locations, and also how do you get back to engaging with clients in a way that's good for them, noting that not all of them are back are going to be back in one location on any one one day as going into the future. So I think those are the, the challenges that we're looking at at the moment. I can relate to a lot of those, both as an individual and as a CEO, and it just keeps evolving. We have to adapt to it. Now. Derivative markets held up remarkably well during the coronavirus crisis last year, although there was some impact on liquidity with clients reporting having to trade in smaller size. What are the lessons do you think we can learn from this period and and do we need any reforms? Yeah, look, I think in in a situation that we went through back in the spring of last year, I, I think something like that, there will always be a challenge to liquidity as you know, the initial reaction from a market to any crisis or, or period of uncertainty is the participants step back. They look to understand the situation at hand. People look at the implications for their own risk management and for the wider marketplace. So I do think that you know that that initial reaction to the crisis is one that will, if we had a, a similar event, would would occur again. But I think that given the scale of this crisis, that period of illiquidity proved to be a lot shorter on a relative basis than we've ever experienced in, in previous similar crises. My view is, you know, the prompt action that, that the central banks took, whether or not it was from rate cuts or, or liquidity injections, combined with combinations that regulators made in terms of capital rules and encouraging banks to use buffers, I think really helped to stabilize the markets. And that in it, in turn led to much improved liquidity. And I, you know, there's no doubt that the past experiences of the, the GFC crisis really enabled everybody to have more of a playbook and therefore have a, a very prompt response 
which I think paid dividends. So um, I think that that previous experience helped to provide a solid foundation uh, for the market to operate. And you know, the speed with which the regulators and central banks responded was really quite impressive. So, yes, there was a liquidity issue. Yes, some of the transactions that we would normally take for granted in terms of size didn't get done. And that did go on for a period of time. But I think that the market actually, given what everyone was facing, functioned pretty well in most of the, the product areas. And I think they say it's largely down to those actions that were taken by central banks and regulators. You mentioned in your opening response that LIBOR was a priority for clients and your bank. It's also a priority for the ISDA board. With the recent announcement by the FCA, we now have complete clarity on the timetable for the cessation of non-representativeness of all LIBOR settings. In your view, did the announcement move the needle in terms of how firms are thinking about LIBOR transition? And what message are you giving to your clients at this point? Yeah, I think that announcement on March the 5th really helped to solidify the cessation dates and really crystallized that this is happening. And it was a really important step in the transition process. And from our clients, we're in active discussions with them around um, not only educating them on developments around transition, but also um, you know, helping them to understand what that might that mean for legacy portfolio and the implications of that, of that to their um, to their back books. There is no one fit, one size fits all from a client perspective, and I think it is very much, you know, doing bilateral engagement, trying to understand where, you know, what is the what is the derivative portfolio of the client look look like, and then how can you help transition both for new transactions, but also for for the legacy transactions. And my view is, you know, we've had really good engagement from the clients that we've spoken with. And there's a, a whole range of uh, of where people are in the spectrum in terms of transitioning from a from an eyeball perspective. So so some people are you know have already done it. Some are very, very much along the path and, and others are still still considering what their what their actions will be. But I think you know having a proactive dialogue is key. And I'd encourage anyone listening to the, the podcast to who hasn't had that engagement with their financial services provider to to reach out and, and ask the questions and get help because there is a lot of help within the industry and there's a lot of support that can be given and information. And I'd really um I'd really encourage that. Terrific. One feature of this is obviously the, the transition to the new rates. And and we're running out of time, frankly, with most of the most of the IBOR settings uh, triggering at the end of this year. And, of course, the official sector announcements, uh, particularly out of the U.S., that says no new LIBOR will be written. So what are you seeing in terms of trading liquidity and trading activity and what needs to happen to really increase the amount of liquidity in RFRs? Yeah, that's a good question, Scott. (laughs) So we've seen a notable shift in client requests from LIBOR to OIS, both via electronic platforms and through voice. It's been obviously really evident in the sterling space, and the vast majority of the requests that we receive are related to Sonia. I think a market-wide migration of dollar CSA interest rates from Fed funds to SOFA will really assist in liquidity. However, illiquidity in long-dated SOFA swaps and non-linear SOFA products, along with the complexity of legacy portfolios, really has led to some hesitancy in the dealer community. So as an alternative, dealers are investigating, looking at how they execute CSAs for future trades and leading legacy portfolios with Fed funds. 
I think setting hard progress interim dates and making sure that there's really clear communication between all market participants, whether or not that's market makers or banks, issuers, clients, you know, I think that detailing expectations is the key. And I think you know, a good example of this is the important milestone that the sterling risk-free rate working group set for all firms um, on ceasing and the initiation of LIBOR-linked loans and bonds and so on that expired at the end of March. So I think actually setting really clear dates, having real clear communication, and you know, as more and more clients engage, then I think we'll get more liquidity in those risk-free rates. And so it, it's already there in sterling. I think it's really in the, in the dollar product that we uh, we need to see some, some increased liquidity. Well, that's a good point. Do you think that the relief until mid-2023 has helped or hindered the shift to alternative U.S. dollar rates like SOFR? I think it's been helpful from one respect in that the U.S. market has by far and away the largest participation. Um, so having that extended timeline really helps for the more orderly transition for some. But I also think it's hindered. And I think it's hindered because it's hindered the transition of dollar derivative product, both in interest rate swaps and cross-currency and in the loan markets. And I think by extending the date, it may result in some participants delaying taking actions. Um, you know, I think you know, when you've got a date that's out there until mid-2023, it may mean that participants maybe hold back on looking at it until mid-2022 or end of 2022. I think the extension was required in order to help with that, you know, to ensure an orderly transition. But equally, I think that the consequence of that is it's probably delayed the transition because a lot of market participants will feel that they just got more time to affect that transition. Now, as it is the board member, you've been closely involved with the development of the new fallbacks for derivatives. And we've talked a lot about that on this podcast. And, you know, we've really had a very successful result with over, with almost 14,000 counterparties adhering to that protocol, making it our most successful uh, protocol yet. Can you give us a flavor of how the board approached this issue and the importance of this initiative? Yeah, I think it was it was probably the most important initiative that the board has dealt with in my tenure at, at ISDA. And I think that it was taken with a high degree of seriousness and responsibility. And I think that the board was really clear that our role is representing all market participants and making sure that there was sufficient consultation and uh, sufficient means for market participants to give their views and feedback around the development of the fallbacks. I think that there was a, a very large degree of debate and um, and counsel taken. We took it really, really seriously, but approached it in, um, in very much a, a view of soliciting views, soliciting counsel, and then drawing to a consensus that we felt would work for the majority of market participants. Let's switch topics. It's been five months since the end of Brexit. While the UK FCA announced uh, temporary relief at the end of last year to allow firms that are subject to the UK derivatives trading obligation to trade with EU clients on EU venues in specific circumstances, there is still no equivalence between the UK and EU trading venues, resulting in some business moving to the US 
in your role, how has this impacted the clients? How has this impacted trading liquidity? And have UK and EU firms changed their behavior in terms of who they trade with? Yeah, the, the relief by the FTA was welcome. And it was really positive that they took steps to deal with some of the most problematic consequences of the, of the DTO as they relate to client business. But it was certainly not, you know, as you said, not the same as an equivalence. Um, and so the relief fell somewhat short of, of that position. I think it has meant that there's been an ongoing impact on the ability to conduct non-client business between EU and UK counterparties, and notably from a hedging activity perspective. So while SES remain permissible as execution venues, we do find that in some cases, they're not considered to be desirable execution venues. And that does mean that there are some practical challenges in the ability to execute some trades. And that has meant that it has had a notable impact on, on client behavior. There's, a, there's been a trend that we've seen for EU clients to migrate away from the UK as a trading hub and, and focus maybe more on those trading hubs in Paris, Frankfurt, and Dublin. And many are also moving their legacy portfolios to those trading hubs. And the DTO instruments um, clients in the EU have been forced to trade on EU venues by some of the main electronic platforms. And that's resulted in some clients being unable to trade with UK firms. And that's meant that there has been some fracturing of liquidity or reduction in liquidity. Sean, you mentioned in your earlier uh, response, uh, the clients are thinking a lot about ESG. This is an issue that has come on with a lot of intensity lately and a lot of pers- uh, interest by clients of all sorts. What are your clients telling you about this and, and, and how do you think about this uh, new topic? The last year has been the year that ESG has gone mainstream. And in fact, you know, speaking to many of our clients, ESG is now just part of their normal investment behavior. It's not a a separate team or group. It's just part of the investment process. Um, And I think it will just continue to evolve from there. Within that ESG banner, there are so many topics to unpack. I think that actually the piece around governance and the, the social aspect of ESG is gaining more and more importance versus you know, obviously, the environmental and green aspect is, it remains a very key focus in people's minds. But I think that, that possibly the other areas are coming more into play. And I think it's looking also around how ESG impacts on all areas of the financial services market now. And you know, there, there's been a pretty well-developed green bond market for some time. But how can ESG be applied across? everything from loans through derivatives to um, to looking at how do you use financial markets instruments to drive behavior and to drive better behavior. And it, we've, we're also seeing you know, an increasing role from the regulators around them looking at, at ESG, both from a conduct and from a prudential perspective. So there's really been a step change in, um, in how it's become uh, part of every day versus, you know, I think even 12 months ago, it was it was seen more as a as an overlay rather than just as as, a, as how you have to approach all of your business or every aspect of how you do business now. Interesting. It's a powerful and important trend. Great to see it growing like this. Now, normally this podcast is all business, but I'd like to wrap up by finding out a little bit more about you and how you actually became global head of sales. 
How did you end up in this industry in the first place? And what advice would you give a young person today, particularly a female, about this business? Yeah, so look, I I started very many years ago as a graduate trainee, and I sort of fell into banking, if I'm honest. I I graduated in a recession, and there were um, not very many jobs around, and I got offered a handful of jobs from various banks, and so um, that was how my career started. I did lots of different things, and I've done lots of different things over my over my career. Always the vast majority of it, actually, in in the markets business. And and I think one thing that that has taught me, and one piece of advice I'd give is that if you can get a breadth it can be really helpful, and particularly early on in your career. And so if you're given an opportunity to try something new or to do something new, don't always think that your career has to be a trajectory. It can sometimes be a lateral move that helps you to progress at a later stage. So I worked in the markets business in a number of different sales roles that got progressively more senior across a a variety of different asset classes. And then I've moved to a, manager, you know, a more managerial role, maybe a, about a decade or so ago. And I was fortunate enough to be offered the opportunity to run the global head of sales in a recent organizational change that RBC had. So I think that the piece of, you know, the key pieces of advice I would have would be grab the opportunities. Don't think that your career always has to go um, upward in an upward trajectory, but what can you learn around sideways moves and sometimes lateral moves. And also, I I think the other key piece, which has always, I think, been important and is increasingly ever important, is building a network and building a wide and varied network so that you get diverse views, diverse opinions, and you can educate yourself. And, And I think that that networking across across a variety of different areas is really um, is really key to helping you to grow in your, your career. Fantastic. Thank you. Great advice. We're out of time here, but we'll wrap it up. But Sean, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate your insight and your participation today. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Scott. It's been great to speak with you today. Scott, it was great to get the perspectives of someone who has a customer-focused role, who talks to clients day in, day out. What did you take away from that conversation? Yeah, Nick, it was great to to hear from Sean. Obviously, LIBOR is a, a big, important issue. ESG's terrific. Your perspective on on the market pandemic response is interesting. I'm I'm sorry we ran out of time and didn't get to the diversity issues because I think somebody in her role, seeing the market and seeing financial services through that diversity lens, is pretty important. We'll have to come back to that topic. The pressure about building SOFR liquidity, for example, is is pretty interesting. And I don't think anybody has a, a perfect answer on it yet, but I think it's going to build over time. Well, that just about brings episode 10 to an end. Just think another 10 of these and we would have passed the end 2021 deadline for the end of most LIBOR settings. Please join us for episode 11. But if you'd like more information on benchmark reform or indeed any of the other topics covered in this podcast, please do visit the ESTA website. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time. 